Hi, Mark Snedeker. Hello, Christina LaRusso. So guess what, Mark? Um, I have no, there's no telling. It's spooky season. It is spooky season. What does that mean exactly? Once again, are you going to ask me trick questions (laughs) and wait for me to fuck up? No, it's Halloween. We wanted to do once again this year a special episode where we went to someplace spooky. We wanted to do it last year, where we didn't have a chance to be able to do that. COVID, true. And we had talked about, you know, what could we do that's going to be spooky and cool? Well, we're actually going to be doing that in a couple of weeks when we're in New Orleans. Yes, it will be spooky and or cool. So we'll have something to report back for that but in this case we didn't have anything spooky or cool so what we wanted to do is share with you something that we're doing um a different project it's the interview with the vampire reaction show that we do it's called vampire insider now our normal weekly thing is for us to recap every episode and talk about the different themes that are going on in the episode character development character arc who's our favorite character um Easter eggs. Easter eggs, body count. We do a counts. running body count. Yeah. So we've got some fun aspects, how it differs from the book. It's really a combination of an AP English class and a stand-up comedy session. <laughs> we do have a very funny, though, third co-host, and her name is Joanne Palumbo, yeah. and we are so proud to have her as a co-host. She's doing such a great job with us. You can imagine how difficult it is to get between Mark and I, <laughs> and Joanne has to do it every week. So we're going to play for you today an episode where we discuss the book. This is one we did earlier in our the podcast as we were waiting for the series to debut. Now, when you say the book, do you mean the Bible? I mean, Interview with the Vampire by Anne Rice. Which is basically the Bible for a certain segment <laughs> of the population. People, really was, a f- and actually for Gen X, it, ha- it yeah. was a, f- a foundational book. I read it when I was in my teens. It was yeah. released in 1976, I believe is the date. And, but I came to it like when I was in 84, 85, You were 14, way too 15. young to read it in, I was the, young, in the bicentennial. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't reading it when I was six. So this was very important to me as an emo young woman, as oh, yeah. a Gen Xer. And, this um, ranks right up there with listening to The Cure right? and, and getting Doc Martens. Right. I mean, and then, it's part of the costume. That's right. And then in the early 90s, the movie came out when I was in my early 20s. You know, it was just all of this. So I was a big Anne Rice fan, and I think that that'll come across in this episode. Mark and Joanne are terrific at playing along with me in my little passion project. So <laughs> anyway, I hope that you enjoy this. It's sort of spooky, but we'll have real spooky for you when we come back from New Orleans. Yeah, not fake spooky. Not fake spooky. Not ersatz spooky. <laughs> so uh, to lead you into the episode, I will use one of our taglines, invite us in. <laughs> that you're going to say it's not easy being teethy. It's also not easy being teethy. <laughs> That's a good one too. One, two, three podcasters. Ah, ah, ah. All right. Um, I'm willing to sit here and listen to Christine do the count all day. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to the Vampire Insider. This is a podcast where Joanne, Christine, and I get together to recap and discuss Interview with the Vampire, the new AMC television series based on the vampire universe created by gothic horror literary legend Anne Rice. We each bring a different level of vampire lit acumen ranging from entry level 
all the way to completely obsessed. As we wait for the series to debut on October 2nd, 2022, we are going to be sharing episodes that dig into the literary and historical world of the vampire, starting with this episode, which explores the book that started it all, Interview with the Vampire. Please join us on our Twitter, at vampire underscore insider, for updates on our podcast, as well as fun interaction about the series. Thanks for listening to us each week. And if you like us, please share us with a friend. Hi, Joanne. Hi, Mark. Hi, Mark. Hi, okay. Joanne. <laughs> wow, that was a very unvampire sounding voice you had there, I Christina. Know. What am I supposed to say? Are you just like the girl skipping down the street waiting for the vampire oh, to swoop boy. down and gobble her up? Maybe, maybe. Joanne, before we dive into the book discussion, we got to see the trailer this week. It was I loved totally it. A trailer. Let's talk about that trailer. It's uh, just over two minutes and 20 seconds. And it starts out showing us how Lestat has been stalking Louis, getting to know him, watching him. Then it looks like there's some sort of poker game. And I, I'm kind of getting the feeling that's when things go wrong for Louis during that <laughs> yeah. poker game. Because he tried and to fill an inside straight. <laughs> I, I think he lost the hand big time. Yeah. It doesn't really give too much away. But we, you know, we get a glimpse of, you know, our, our main characters, Louis and Lestat, and also um, Claudia mm-hmm. dressed up in what kind of looked like a little sailor doll outfit. And um, she just pounces on these poor unsuspecting souls that were standing there. I have a feeling she's going to be the most vicious of the yeah. trio. Which tracks, which, right? which tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought, you know, the, the, the scene with the poker game, it looks like Lestat exercises some kind of freaky vampire power. Oh yeah. He looks like he's frozen. Everybody he things in time. And then Louis is the one he's, he can still move or it, like there, there's some kind of freaky mind control happening there. Yeah. So, Correct. uh, Louis is played by Grey Worm. We know yes. that so far. Mm-hmm. Jacob, Anderson. Jacob Anderson. And uh, uh, Lestat Williams <laughs> from the Outback is <laughs> <laughs> uh, played by uh, an Australian bloke, isn't he? Yes, he is. Samuel Reed. <laughs> Sam Reed. One of the things, though, that I did notice is that that Sam Reed's accent is really good as Lestat. He sounded annoying to me. I like Louis' accent. I'm not a fan of what I heard of Lestat, but. I'm going to give him some grace and reserve judgment. Episodes, yes. And reserve my judgment. So far, what I heard, I'm not impressed by him. Mm-hmm. But Jacob Anderson, yes, very much so. There's a lot that I see that I kind of that connects with the book. There's a lot that doesn't. I'm about to call so bullshit on that. Day I day. really, really want th- them to daywalk. I just Ugh, why? I don't know. It's I just very didn't. non-vampire-y. And Christina pointed out as we were just watching the trailer at the end. It looks to be daylight outside. Maybe they can do this because technology has advanced, you know, now that he can have some kind of UV shielding or something. Perhaps. Because I mean, I'm, remember I'm technology magical. Yeah, you remember technology impacted him in the uh in the movie. I don't know if this is in the movie, movie, right? And in the book yeah. too. The helicopter yeah, he get, light. Yeah, he gets to go watch a movie sunrise. Yeah, but here's my thing. I can't tell if it they're behind some sort of special glass. Yeah, yeah, he's shielding him from the UV rays, which is, you know, what essentially causes them to explode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, if he doesn't, he, we're going to have a big problem. Why are big, you so could be a really short lived story vampire, if he explodes in the first episode? Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, you know, dust out of the sun. Vampires have been doing it for thousands of years. It, it gives the vampire. It's important when you create monsters that you not make them invincible. 
you have to give them weaknesses because they're going to be superhuman in a lot of areas. They're faster than us. They're stronger than us. But you have if you don't have those kind of classic, some kind of classic vampire weakness, it's just a Mary Sue. It's just, oh, look, I created some demigods. They're going to run around the earth and make it their playground. Hmm. It's Listen, not compelling. Evolve. It's logical to believe that vampires have evolved. They, they can't evolve. They don't breed. I mean, unless the argument is there's some kind of virus in their blood, I guess, that could evolve. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, daywalkers, no. Everything else, yes. Wow. Okay. Well, Mark and Joanne, I can tell I can tell that this is going to be a point of contention. Oh, we're gonna fight about it. <laughs> yes. I give the trailer an A minus. An A minus. Ooh, a minus for Louis's voice. Is that yeah, a little bit? It's a little bit. I took a little bit off for it, but you know what? Time will tell. So, Christina, what are we going to be discussing today? Okay, so we're going to be talking about the book. Um, and so I'm going to give a little bit of background about sort of where it fits in for, in terms of genre and the, its early reception, um, and then also where those vampires fit in within vampire tradition. And this is the this is going to kind of pull on that thread that you were mentioning and Mark about vampire evolution and whether or not that's possible. So, um, okay, let's talk first about Interview with a Vampire is a work of gothic fiction written by Anne Rice and published first in 1976. So it's the keystone novel of the Vampire Chronicles. And it's that's a Ricean universe that she created that has crossover also with Mayfair Witches and, and other of her characters. They all kind of inhabit that universe. Vampire Chronicles uh, fit into a larger tradition of vampire stories. And, and it's not all vampire stories, it's sort of gothic stories, gothic, yes. gothic novels, which are marked by hauntings and creepy Horror locations and, and stovepipe hats. Strange characters and, and monsters. Okay. So Mary Shelley, of course, um did Frankenstein, Bronte Sisters, Edgar Allan Poe, Charles Dickens, Bram Stoker, who did Dracula. Robert Louis Stevenson. Here's some modern ones though. Daphne du Maurier, who wrote Rebecca fantastic, fantastic Gothic novel, Stephen King, Salem's Lot, and Toni Morrison. So Rice initially imagined this as a short story. She wrote it in like 1968 or 69. They're not clear on when the short story is actually written. But when she was in grad school, her daughter, Michelle, became sick with a form of leukemia, and she died at four years old. And at that time, Rice resurrected her story about the vampires and ended up turning it into a novel, which was rejected by publishers many times. So anybody who's an aspiring author out there, just know that Interview with the Vampire, which went on to be, you know, sort of the the first of a 13 book series and massive wealth and acclaim for Anne Rice was rejected many times. All right. So she found a, she found an agent and a publisher and it, then it was released, but to mixed reviews from critics. So some liked it. Some said her prose was a little bit flowery. Well, it is. It's a genre novel. It's not intended to be of mice and men. It's a horror vampire movie, uh, novel. Could you imagine being the publisher or, you know, who passed on interview with oh, the vampire yeah. well, or sure. the, you yeah. know, book reviewer who said it wasn't good. I mean, look, somebody didn't draft Michael Jordan first, right? There's always that, you know, person out there who. And I bet makes, they feel bad too. Yeah. <laughs> makes, makes the biggest blunder of all time. Well, they drafted Sam Bowie, whose legs exploded right after they uh, 
drafted him. So that didn't work out for them, did it? Yeah. Whoever that editor was, it's, you know, it was some like newbie, just that, like, that person that, like that. that has to read all so of it. Icky. That has to read all of the submissions. And they're, they're like, like, yeah, pass nah, on this. I yeah. bet Mark would have passed on it. Mark would have definitely yeah. passed on it. The novel ultimately has sold roughly 8 million copies, has been adapted for comic book Big screen. It's actually there's been a stage production done uh, really? to do with um with Lestat and then also now is this television series. So yeah. Vampire lit fits into a tradition. Vampires are lit. The whole vampire genre is totally lit. It is. All right. So it, so there's a long history of it. Uh, once, once they made the leap during the 18th century from folklore to fiction. So there's a long tradition. And we will talk about that in another episode about the folklore of vampires. Yeah. But in this. But what now we're focusing on is the, the leap to fiction. There was a lot to do with the romantics. Lord Byron was involved in this. Yeah. This guy called Polidori. They were kind of the first folks during the same time that Shelley was writing Frankenstein. Yeah. That's when these stories were kind of coming out. OK, so but then fast forward to Dracula by Bram Stoker. Right. Which is probably the most famous vampire novel. I Everybody, so. I mean, if you say name a vampire, chances are people will go Dracula. to Dracula. That's yes. a absolutely Famous one, right? Okay. Or the count from Sesame Street. One, one reference <laughs> one. to me. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh. However, in the 20th century, several American authors tackled the subject, and these authors are, are kind of foundational to the genre. First of all, uh, Richard Matheson, I Am Legend. Did, have you read that? I saw the movie. Joanne, did you read or see the movie I Am Legend? There's been three I versions. I saw of the I movie. Legend. I did not read the book. No, I, re- I saw the Will Smith version. The Will Smith. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even see that. But now he calls them vampires, but ultimately they're they, more like they zombies. Zombies. They're fast yeah. zombies. But they they eat blood. Well, they yeah. This shit's all made up, so <laughs> it's okay. Well, is but, it though, it Mark? Follow rough, strict taxonomical requirements. Do you, do you you really think there's nothing else out there? There's no nothing supernatural. Right. No magic. No There's witches, lots of natural no stuff. There's just no supernatural stuff, mm-hmm. except in these amazingly entertaining books and movies, which I'm all you about. Believe in ghosts? No. Oh come on, Joanne. When I tell you that Mark lives an impoverished, very clinical oh gosh, life, that's such bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have some stories about ghosts I could tell you. I'll tell you after I'm this. Sure. Oh, oh, I New Orleans, Joanne. We're gonna have to go yes. on a vampire ghost tour. He's going to be scared and be like, oh, you have to hold his hand and stuff. I think yeah. <laughs> Mark will be heckling. I mean, the if it's a high guy. crime area, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, look, I'm I'm not afraid of vampires, but I don't want somebody to come and beat my ass and take my wallet. So. <laughs> All right. So um, besides I Am Legend, which predated uh, interview, there was Salem's Lot. By yes. Stephen King. Great, great book. Uh, I saw the movie and then later I read the book. Both terrified me because I, I remember course, that Stephen vampire King. being really hideous looking. Oh, yeah. I have There's never no watched. handsome Brad Pitt in Stephen King's book. No, these are not. These are not the vampires of sexy. No, <laughs> for I've sure. never watched or read anything Stephen King because I'm terrified of him. You have, have to watch it. something by Stephen King. I bet no, you I bet you a dollar that you have. Stand by me. Stand by me. 
Oh, well, all right. Never mind. Three mile. Nothing scary by Stephen <laughs> Josh King. Redemption. Shawshank Redemption. Shawshank Redemption. Redemption was written by Stephen King. Yeah, yeah. it's a short story. I got to get out more. Great story about Stephen King is that for new first time directors, this is my understanding, he will sell you the rights to some of his short stories for you to, to do only if you have to pay him like a dollar. Yeah. Oh, and then out. you can That's produce cool. them. And Shawshank was one of those that yeah. I think was made for very. I'm sure he made some money down the road. Certain that he probably had. <laughs> Maybe he's got. King doesn't miss too many opportunities for the uh, Doleros. I can tell you that. Right. Okay. So so Rice then slides in there after Salem's Lot, and it is it is a revolutionary book about vampires. Seventy six is when yeah. her, she published. She changes some things. Well, she about, changed the camera. Really? Kind of. Yeah. Because you're no longer just the vampire is no longer just this mysterious force that everybody's investigating and trying to kill. The really the story is like, all right, so I'm a vampire. What does that mean? The big difference is before the vampire is just kind of this, you know, devastatingly handsome, sometimes killer. And we hear about the victims now really more about the uh, the killer. Yeah. Inside the mind of the vampire. Right. Correct. So it's more of an autobiography of a vampire than a book from the perspective of the people who were being harassed by vampires. Harassed by a vampire is just an understatement. <laughs> I think they do a little more than harass you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this is actually the first point of discussion then uh, that I thought would be interesting, kind of launched the, the topic, which is previously the temp- tension in vampire novels seems to be what is a vampire and how do we destroy it? But Rice's vampires ask a dis- different question and she also asks her audience to ask a different question and look at it from a different perspective. And that is, I'm a, I'm a vampire. How do I live? And how, who, va- how vampire? How, who am I? Right. So the question to you guys, okay. how does this break with tradition? Do you think impact the reader? So as a reader, how did that impact you? I definitely found it more interesting. It gave the characters more depth, uh, more personality. And, you know, it, it wasn't so much like we said, it wasn't so much about them going out and killing and doing this and trying to be killed, but it was navigating through their individual existential crises, trying to figure out who they are, why are they this way? How can they make it through this way? And I think that really lends to why Anne Rice's interview with the vampire and subsequent novels were such a big success because it was just a different lens. And I think it changed the way that people wrote about vampires once she started humanize and really ultimately she humanizes them in a way that Mm -hmm. because if you think about monsters one of the things like even with like frankenstein frankenstein they at a certain point big personality going on no but they try to humanize (laughs) him with the flower right you know but they took that away when he launched the child across the lake (laughs) well you know he just doesn't understand his own strength but like vampires are human but ish but the way that they are previously presented is that they are human and and just full on evil. And all they think about is killing. And that's it. Right. Sure. Right. And there, There is that in vampire in interview. They're hungry. And, but there's more. Right. Yeah. And there's more. Well, what they're, they're very self-reflective. Yes. They are way too self-reflective. <laughs> Louis he is for sure. Louis. But if you can't be reflective in real life, I guess self-reflective is the only thing they can do. Because uh, they can't see themselves in mirrors. Um, so yeah. I think what. Anne Rice did that turned it on its head and made it so popular is she made you empathize with the vampire, Mm -hmm. right? Now you identify with, instead of just as a symbol of, you know, power and fear and evil, 
now it's a dude, mm-hmm. right? Who's with complex feelings and angst. God, so much angst <laughs> and, you know, navel gazing and, you know, and presents them with some of the dilemmas that you would have to face if you had this, because of course, you know, yeah, internal life sounds great, except now everybody, you know, dies. Uh, I would love to be over a vampire. And over well, that's again. great. But you have to murder people on the regular. And these are real people or, uh, you know, I love being a vampire. Yeah. Don't get caught out in, uh, you know, in the sunlight, though, or you'll burst into flames like God intended. Maybe could could be not. Well, what you're essentially saying is that they're relatable. They have humanity. I I wouldn't say Dracula explored his humanity at any point in time. I think, you know, since Interview with the Vampire, a lot now have written their characters to to have humanity and explore that. Yeah. Historically, when people get turned into a vampire, then they're just an evil killing machine. Mm-hmm. Right. They're so, an apex predator. Yeah. So in Bram Stoker's Dracula, once you get turned, your past, you know, live is meaningless. And in fact, you'll turn on the people you love and eat them. There's none of this. Well, I don't know. I'm really hungry. I guess I'll eat them. No, it was just now I'm a vampire. I'm evil. I'm eating you. Let me just say one more thing about sort of this humanity question. Did you have more connection, say, with Louis, who was telling you his story and actually told you his human story versus like, uh, what's his name? Santiago, the the one who hated them in Paris. Yeah. The one who hated them. I mean, even Armand, you don't know Armand's backstory, really. You you don't really get to hear their backstory, even Lestat. You don't know Lestat's backstory. You just know that he got turned and that the guy who turned him took off on him. But Louis gives you this buildup. He really sets the stage for his humanity because he tells you about his humanity. And then even after he's turned, he's still talking constantly about his humanity, the humanity of others, his struggles, his His concerns about killing of life. Right. You know, yeah. And he even tries to be a non-human killing vampire for yeah. a long, long like, stretch. I'll just try that bit. At a certain point in the novel, the characters, Claudia and Louis, Claudia is the child vampire that Lestat turns and creates a, like a little thruple, a little family unit that also seems to be in love with one another <laughs> on some levels. And then Claudia tries to kill Lestat and then it's just Louis and Claudia and they take off and they're going to go find the origins because Claudia is super fascinated with where did we come from? And I think that Louis is as well. And the way to do that in their mind, because they've been studying Claudia has 23 and me and said, so they're going to travel. They're going to travel to Eastern Europe. I mean, that's where that's what the folklore would say. That is what the folklore. Would and say. that's what she was studying. Right? Uh, she right. was studying basically legends and myths mm-hmm. and folklore. She Googled it. Yeah, she, <laughs> she gave it a goog. Um, all right. So the revenants were badly made vampires, according to Rice, yeah. uh, according to Rice. OK, and they existed in the kind of folkloric style of vampires. So vampires in the folklore were these this type mindless of thing, mindless killing machines. killing machines. What I thought was interesting is how Rice drew Eastern Europe as a kind of backwards and superstitious place compared to Western Europe and the U.S. was pro- progressive places. Now, this is meant to be taking place in the you know early 1800s, I yeah. think. And I thought it was interesting to have that parallel where this old type of Europe still existed and people were superstitious. Sure. So, I mean, they were peasants. So what role did you guys think 
that the revenants played in the narrative. Like I said, I definitely think they were used to illustrate, again, the evolution that even though at current time for the book, that there are some vampires that have evolved into that more civilized manner of living, you know, just like Louis and Claudia and even Lestat. So she had to create them to compare and contrast the difference between the type of vampire that they are versus what they you know, could have been had they have been turned by whatever was turning the revenants into those hot messes. I think for me, they served as a cautionary tale to Ooh. inform Louis and Claudia that you, you have to know a little bit about what you're doing if you're going to turn a vampire, because this is what it's like when you don't. Things can don't, go left. Yeah. When you don't observe, you know, kind of the traditions and rules, et cetera, which obviously, you know, Armand's people do and it caused them to stagnate of course if you don't follow those rules it'll be anarchy you know obviously that's bad for the culture of vampires because you know then you call attention to yeah, yourself exactly although maybe you can say yeah see that's a vampire me i'm just pale right? <laughs> i'm just thin and pale so with a slight about allergy me. to the sun <laughs> yeah you just got to worry more about those hungry little buggers out there in romania and you probably don't last very long either because villagers tend to rise up when you do shit like that. I was looking at it from kind of a Freudian perspective. And I thought to myself, if Louis is like the super ego and Lestat is maybe the ego. How is Lestat the, okay. And what is Claudia? The I guess the revenants are the id. Revenants are the id, you know? So I was thinking about it as, you know, if you put, put all of the vampire possibilities together in a psychology right. of vampires, there's, there's the id of the vampire, which is that feeding machine. Yes. And then there's the ego, the more real life, this is it. And then the superego. So, so the superego is Louis, who's like constantly thinking. So, so imagine them as all one vampire. Yeah. And Lestat has those bloodthirsty, I want to kill urges of the id, of the revenants. But then he also has the capacity or he has Louis along with him to help him be self-reflective. Now, again, we're talking about the Lestat that we know only from interview. We don't know about the vampire Lestat, where he essentially right. comes in and does a big revision of what Louis. Yeah, he's has. like, no, no, no. I'm really a great, no, no, no. great I'm a really guy great vampire. Fun guy. <laughs> you know, I'm the Lord of Misrule, maybe, but I'm pretty cool. And yeah. I, I didn't need him for his money because I had tons of money. But but we're talking about just in interview, Lestat probably encompasses. We don't know yet that he has that Louis in him, that self-reflective right. side. So I think you've done two things. The first thing is I think you've pretty fairly categorized the characters in the book there. Claudia obviously is probably more towards the id than anything. She doesn't really have a ton of self-control. Well, she's like a child. Well, she's a child. She has she is a child. Yeah. Uh, and I yeah. think the other thing you managed to do was to illustrate the limitations of Freudianism because <laughs> it's really kind of a clumsy tool because there's really only, I mean, you have those three concepts to categorize people with and it's a little limiting right you're like well they're kind of like an ego or a little bit but um no i think i mean i think that's a reasonable uh categorization and then you know then where do we fit claudia into that yes definitely claudia is more id of course what children are Joanne, going back to what you had said about the the trailer that we saw, the lack of, you know, Louis running up with Lestat and Louis says no. And then she jumps and attacks a police officer. She's incorrigible. She she is. She's <laughs> naughty. She has no she has no self. She has no self. Somebody needs a timeout. 
Yeah. That's for sure. <laughs> That's it. It's a problematic situation for Claudia because she's little body, but her brain, she, her brain grew up, grew up and didn't drag her body along with her. And she's obsessed with this idea of womanhood and being fully adult. And she can't ever be that. Yeah. Right? Well, and it's not just her body that put her at a disadvantage. It was that, you know, she could never go out at night alone because she's a child of, you know, four or five years old wandering the streets. So she was always going to need a companion or a guardian or somebody with her, unlike every other vampire that can, you know, kind of go out and do their own thing. Right. Um, she was very limited in what she could do, but she made the most of it. You know, as we're talking about Claudia, I just had a thought and I'm wondering since the new series takes a lot of liberties with the storyline, I wonder if they kill Claudia. Will they keep her character into the next season or the season after? I'm I don't know, but if, if I were that actress, I wouldn't ask for a raise. That's for sure. Mm, for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. So next episode. <laughs> and I wonder if that will change, you know, some of her internal struggles. Will, will things be different? Because also she's a teenager who could pass for a little bit older and, and walk around at night and maybe in the day. Who knows? We'll find out um, without that guardian. So it frees her up in a lot of ways. Um, so it'll be interesting again to see how they portray her and if ultimately she suffers the same fate as Claudia in the books and the movie. Okay. So one of the other things that's going to depart from the book in the TV series revolves around who Louie is. And Louie in the book is a white slave owner. His story begins with him as a white slave owner who is running a plantation and he has his mother and his sister and his brother living with him. And his brother is on some kind of religious. His brother's, yeah, religious fanatic. A religious basically. fanatic. And um, but he's he's a slave owner. Now, obviously, in the new series, as Joanne, you pointed out, that's not the case. No, we oh, find well, Although, I mean, certainly he's in into human trafficking. So it's he similar. Does, you know, he's still in the human business. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. so, them in one way or another. Well, Lestat always did say he loved the taste of Creole. No. So. Oh, Mark. No, you don't remember wow. that? Yes, I do. But <laughs> slavery as a reality and as a concept are discussed in the book by Louis and Lestat. So Louis is talking about slavery and, and the practice of slaver slavery and how he interacted with his slaves and the overseer and sort of that, that sort of culture. And then Lestat compares becoming a vampire to becoming a slave. You're a slave <laughs> to, to the person, to the vampire who's who turned you. Turns out not so much. Potentially not. But that's what he was selling to yeah. Louis. All right. Yeah. So what did you guys, this is a, a two part question. What does Lestat mean by this? Well, he wants to establish a hierarchy. The vampire who made you has some authority over you. Because mm -hmm. certainly he wanted to be able to control Louis. There's no question about that, right? Mm -hmm. And in the same way that owning a slave gives you authority over that person. It's possible that he's trying to wear away Louis' free will a bit and say, look, you know, you're really just a slave. You know, you don't need to spend all your time, you know, navel gazing and wringing your hands and rending your garments, et cetera. You're doing this because I'm telling you you have to. Mm -hmm. you're about that life. Let's go out and bite some people. Mm -hmm. And trying to keep Louis from us being assertive and worrying about his, you know, his own individuality and his angsty struggles with existence. 
He just wants him to say, look, just kind of do what I say. I agree with Mark. It's definitely to establish that, you know, master owner relationship as you, you know, you would have in a traditional plantation owner situation. It's also the obvious, you know, he's a, a slave to the eternal life as well. You're theoretically never going to die. You're always going to be immortal. You're going to have to face these struggles time and time again of losing everybody that you know, and you're a slave to the life that he has given you. Yeah. And I think also there's a certain amount, there's two things. One, Lestat is using that over to hold over his head as I am the keeper of knowledge. Right. You oh, know, yeah, you, know sure. I, you are a slave because I know more than you do. Yeah. And if you are not with me, you're, you're going to, there's going to be problem problems yeah. for you. You're, you know, and that was um, historically in terms of chattel slavery in the American South, a lot of it was that sort of very paternal, like we know better than you. Right. And like, what are you going to do if we turn you free? What are you going to do? Starve. Right. So yeah. you need us because yeah. we have the power or we have the knowledge and we are in, we are, we are in control of that knowledge and we're not, and they did whatever they could to like, for instance, writing, it was illegal yeah. to teach slaves how to write. Right. So they held back that that ability from or kept that ability from from slaves in the American South in the same way that Lestat talks about, well, I know things and you don't know right. you don't know them. And I'm not telling you things that I know that will you know, you don't know all the ways you have to stick with me, kid. Yeah. He says mm -hmm. you don't know all the ways that you can die. Now, it turns out that even though Lestat is trying to convince Louis that he can't survive without his authority and slave owners convinced, tried to convince slaves they couldn't survive without the slave owners. They were both wrong. That's true. That's true. And 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 Louis does eventually come to that. And Lestat didn't teach him anything. Not really. He didn't help him in any way. The other thing that I want to bring up here and I think is relevant, and it's not Exit to Eden. It's the erotica. It's the Sleeping Beauty novels. That is also a book about slavery. It's about sex slavery. And it's about in the earliest versions, princes and princesses were taken from their kingdoms and brought to another kingdom where they served as sex slaves. Oh, There's a lot of a very good gig. <laughs> Obviously, in interview with the vampire, there's a lot of erotic elements to it. But I think that's also something that's kind of under the surface. You don't know it necessarily unless you've read those those other books. But right. I mean, a lot of them even have the same names in, in the other book. When I look at this, I think about it. Or when I was reading this, I was thinking of that. And I was saying to myself, you know, there's a, there's like a, a sexual element to this. Look, Anne Rice was a freak. OK, but in a good way, Mark. Oh, no, no, like, in a, you know, sex positive ish. Yeah. Right? She wasn't a furry. I don't think. Oh, thank God. <laughs> but, you know, she's I mean, that that's what she likes to write. She likes to basically write erotica at different levels. Right. Some are more obviously erotica than others. Right. But she's going to have that in any book she writes. And some of the early reviews on interview actually do address that. They they sort Too of sexy. say this is this is like just, you know, come on. This it's just porn. erotica. It's wrapped it's, up. It's in... a bodice ripper with, you know, teeth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My second question around this slavery issue is how does Louis come to terms with Lestat's assertion. We talked a little bit about like at a certain point, Louis just kind of goes, he couldn't teach me any more than I could. I could learn on my own. But is there any more nuance to that? I think at the beginning, he had no choice but to believe Lestat that there was no other way. And then as we know, when he leaves and meets Armand and the rest of the vampires, he realizes that, again, Louis, uh, 
Lestat knew nothing as, you know, not nearly as much as he had hoped he would. And I don't think even, even if he stayed with Lestat or, or if Lestat did know more, I don't think he ever really intended to share too much with Louis because then to go back to the slavery thing, that would give him some ability to be able to leave him in the future. So if nothing else, Lestat is defined by jealousy. He coveted Louis, right? So he converted him and then he did convert Claudia, but then was constantly jealous of their relationship because he knew Claudia thought he was a dick, right? Mm -hmm. And he was jealous of the amount of time that Claudia and Louis had and that Claudia, you know, obviously clung to Louis uh, slept in his coffin, the whole thing when, you know, Lestat was like, Hey, what about me? I'm the one who made you. Mm-hmm. Right. And then obviously when Armand enters the picture, you know, Louis is just desperate to get Louis away from Armand because Armand can give Louis everything that Louis wanted that Lestat wasn't willing to give him mm-hmm. or was unable to give him. Mm-hmm. Right. Because mostly Lestat pretended to know stuff. Mm-hmm. He didn't seem like he really knew all that much. He knew more than Louis, which isn't saying much, but, um, but he was jealous of Armand. He was jealous of Claudia. Um, he was, you know, he's covetous, right? He wanted to own Louis, not be his partner. You know, that's, he was just a jealous, jealous person. Right. And he was jealous of, you know, more powerful vampires, which is why I think he made sure he was never around them. He found his own city and he was like, I'm going to make my own vampire kingdom with blackjack and hookers Mm -hmm. and, you know, makes, makes Louis. And he just wanted to have his own little fiefdom there where he was the most important thing. And everybody was focused on him. Mm -hmm. Didn't work out that great in the end, but egomaniac, no doubt about it. To the point of Lestat being jealous, it's, he created Claudia to make sure that Louis stayed with him. Right. It was, it was manipulative, but then he was, but then he was jealous of their relationship. And then he was jealous of their relationship. And, and as you said, Claudia just thought he was a dick. And then ultimately when she found out that he was the one that turned her, she was enraged because of course he made her little Forever. forever. One of the sad things about this story is that Anne Rice wrote it after she lost her daughter. Yeah. She, after, after her daughter died, there was a lot of drinking and, and they, she and her husband really struggled with, with alcohol. And then she develops this novel and a lot of literary critics have pointed to the fact that Claudia is a child that can't die. And Madeline obviously is a character that we meet. Claudia is also jealous. She knows that Louis wants to leave and be with Armand. And she realizes that Louis is in in love with Armand in a way that he's not with her. Right. And so she says, create me a a mother vampire so that I can, I can have someone who will be with me. Yeah. And will you know, lift me up to tall shelves, (laughs) drag heavy bodies, you know, whatever. Read me nighttime stories. Yeah, that's right. Um, So once upon a time. So we know that she was struggling with losing Michelle. And um, what I wanted to ask is how does Bryce, it's not only um, Madeline who's grieving in this novel, but there's other elements of grief. And I wondered if you guys um, picked up on, how Rice is exploring grief, her own maybe, and then the, her character's grief, which probably is a, you know, obviously a function of her own grief. If I was going to assign a symbol to Claudia, I would say you'd, clearly it's her daughter, right? But I would say it's it represents the way parents deal with 
a child that they've lost because that child is frozen in time, will always be that age, never changes. Mm -hmm. So to them, you know, 30 years later, obviously that that's how they remember their, their child is as a child, Mm -hmm. right? Because they stopped growing because they died. And obviously Claudia dies, right? And even though she's animated and can run around and bite people, she's not alive in the traditional way. And her appearance never changes. It's like, you know, parents who leave their room, the kid's room, the same, Mm -hmm. right? It's just frozen in time. And that's how I see Anne Rice exploring that idea with Claudia. But I think she did it. I think she did it in in a super healthy way. Um, because she didn't write, you know, the, that Claudia as somebody who lives on forever and goes off to have this great life. She wrote her as, you know, her forever child and she'll always be a forever child and, you know, gave her that untimely death that her own child experienced. And I think that was, you know, a healthy way for her to explore that because it would have been maybe a little troublesome to try to write out the life that she had imagined for her own child, her real life child. So I I think while maybe she had to grieve her twice, grieving Michelle and then grieving the loss of Claudia, I think it, you know, probably helped her within her grief to have that one last um, time with her daughter by, by, you know, exploring this character of Claudia. Before she allowed the son to burn her to death. (laughs) Yes, I agree with both of you. And I would go on to add that I kind of looked for Anne Rice was where she was herself in each of the characters. And I and the way I imagined it was, I think, you know, in some ways she herself was Claudia and that frustration at being trapped at that age and not being able to grow could have been a reflection of, we don't know, authorial intent is a slippery slope, but this is just my just ask speculation, me. Um, is that she, some of that rage that Claudia has at being that age yeah. is Anne Rice's rage that her She's daughter, onto, yeah, yeah. It, that her daughter is not going to, to grow. Right. Of course, I also saw Anne Rice in Madeline as the mother who was clearly grieving a lost child. You know, she yeah. wore the locket around her neck right. with a, with a child's um, image in it. And I thought to myself, okay, so obviously that's the obvious one. Madeline is, is grieving her child in the same way that Anne Rice is grieving hers. And what better way than to be both alive together forever. But you think that, do, do you think that she, you know, gave her Madeline for such a short period of time and then they died together because that was her way of, expressing that she almost wishes she died with her child could be, you know, I, I, mean, I mean, that could be, or it's a way to maybe burn the grief. Like, like I had this, I've, yeah. I've expressed these feelings in print and now I'm, I'm, I'm incinerating the grief, the grief. I'm sure that didn't end there. It certainly didn't. It didn't end there right. for her, but maybe there was some kind of catharsis in creating that situation and then burning it down. Yeah. I mean, a less, Cheerful, a less cheerful interpretation is her role as an active mother died with her child. Mm -hmm. That person's dead along with Michelle. And now I'm just Anne. But okay, somebody else is grieving in the novel, and that's Louis. He's an emo vampire. He is emo. I mean, all vampires after him have that little emo edge, right? They're not just these killing machines. They're thoughtful, thinking human beings. And we have to feel sorry for them now. Not only, well, and that's a question I'm going to ask it kind of at the end. But um, 
So he's grieving his brother and that keeps cropping back up on him. And then he kind of grieves Lestat when he thinks that they've actually succeeded in killing him. Then he regrets it. There's so much Louis teeters on this, this grief slash regret on we it's just so heavy for louis very mopey i think it's for his humanity right because he does talk about you know when he changes madeline where he says that was the last shred of my humanity right Mm -hmm. louis is now louis the guy is gone there's only louis the vampire Mm -hmm. because i did this horrific heinous thing Mm -hmm. which is to turn somebody else into a vampire so i mean i think that's that he's grieving his humanity. Certainly he grieves the loss of sunsets. He grieves that, you know, he has to eat people. Uh, He grieves the loss of his family because of course, you know, his family didn't stick around after, you know, he went vamp. No, he couldn't even visit his family because, you know, he'd freak him out because, you know, vampire. Well, clearly as Louis stated in the book, that was, you know, the last, like you said, Mark, the last shred of his humanity. But I wonder you know, was, did he lose that bit? Because was it more than just him turning her? Was it because he knew he turned her so he could be with Armand or did he really do it for Claudia to have that mother figure? And, um, you know, he's, he's definitely plagued with guilt, you know, cause had he have never come across Claudia and fed on her, she would have eventually died of the plague or, you know, whatever. So I think that he felt giving that last piece of his himself to Claudia was um she was his greatest love as his child but she was also his greatest regret too and because of him even though Lestat made her he she is what she you know eventually became to be while I know that's when he lost his humanity I I struggle with did he really do it for Claudia or did he do it so that he could leave her and go be with Armand. Why not both? Well, I mean, I I was just going to say it could be a little of both. It could be a little both, but here's the interesting thing to me about how he turns Madeline. And that is Madeline is the only character in the book, except for maybe the music teacher who actively wants to become a vampire. She's like, yeah, do it. You know, she's like, please turn me into a vampire. He he's, she's begging him to do it. Yeah. Um, And then she mocks him. She mocks his masculinity and she says to him, if I if you were a real man, if you were an, a, a real man, I would be able to, you know, essentially I'd be able to seduce you. Right. But because you are this abomination of a man, my charms don't hold any kind of power over yeah. you and you're not a real man. Right. Therefore, you're not a real man. And so then he, he there's that point where he goes, well, then I'll show you. I'll show you. I'll chomp on. Your I'll show you and I'll turn you into the, you know, I'll turn you into this. And yes, he does give up his, his what he says is his last shred of humanity. But he's just I feel like he's just being he's just moping. It's just hyperbole, more hyperbole, because he's not really he's still always going to be that guy because here he is years and years later being interviewed and he's still going through these iterations of of guilt. And and I wonder, you know, there's grief and then there's guilt and Mm -hmm. and and the two are not necessarily the same. They may present the same, but in in if you really tease it apart, you know, the, there are things that he's more guilty about than he is grieving them. Ultimately, to me, he's a super selfish character. I didn't find him to be super selfish. Well, I mean, it is his interview, right? So, of course, it right. is going to be all about him. But I he misses a lot of points. And when you really how you see he misses that is when 
he can't quite understand. It takes it takes Claudia quite a while to explain to him why she wants Madeline and what Madeline would mean to her and why Madeline would be a good thing. And he's he's just so in his own head. He can't see past his nose. Also, we we learn this later in the vampire Lestat, but there's a lot that he seems to get wrong about Lestat. Now, even if if Lestat is telling you know, some of what Lestat is saying in Vampire Lestat is not accurate or he's, you know, he's he's embellishing his own record, Lestat. Louis was wrong about a lot, yeah. <laughs> you know, about Lestat. And he just seems to, like I said, get he can't see past his own nose. He is so involved in what's going on inside. OK, so ultimately for me, I just feel like he doesn't see he he can't see past himself. He's just really in his head and he. And it's and and that makes him selfish. But maybe that's just the vampire life. That's how his brother got killed because of Louis' selfishness. Yeah. Oh, for sure. W- was his brother really seeing visions? Who knows? I mean, it's possible because if vampires can exist in this universe, then saints can sure. exist in this universe. Sure. And then he asked Louis to basically give up the plantation and all their wealth so he could use it for the church. Right. Willie was Lil, Lily. Yeah. Louis was not willing to do that. No. Which I don't really blame him. But then later he had guilt about it, right? Yeah. Like he he lives, he makes these decisions and then later he regrets these decisions and and he's resentful. He's the Hamlet of vampires. <laughs> he really is. He is. He's going through. He's the, like, to vamp or not to vamp, is. that is the question. <laughs> so let's kind of run through a few other themes quickly. One is homoeroticism. Vampirism, I mean, just by its very nature, is a very intimate right way to attack somebody and it's and it's at least after a certain point in the literature is always seductive mm-hmm. and sexual right because you always see the victims kind of you know experience some kind of wild paroxysm of pleasure or something while they're having their neck chewed on so it's inherently sexual and then of course there are you know, male vampires biting male victims and females biting females. And I mean, it's yeah. very there's a very there's kind of a pansexuality about it. It's just a bunch of toothy libertines. It's very penetrative. The teeth bite into you. There's and then there's the exchange of fluids. It's all to me, it's all very yeah. and and it's a lot. Right. <laughs> right. Like there's a lot and it's easier to read about, certainly than to see. So next week when we talk about the movie. It's there's a there's an extreme amount of and and it just like, you know, blood around the mouth and just all of that. It's, you know, the teeth are very phallic with the points. And so I think that there is this there's homoeroticism, there's sexuality. In fact, they don't his those vampires, Rice's vampires don't have sex. No, they do other things doesn't work. Right. They do other things, but they don't have full sex. Well, for them, the ultimate high is the kill. Is the kill. Biting at the same time onto somebody, feeding off of somebody at the same right. time is is kind of um, erotic and sexual for them. They they watch each other doing it in some cases, right? So there's yeah, there's voyeurism, do. there's exhibitionism within their community. The, the vampires at the theater, for example. Of course. They, so if we follow that thread and we say that the kill is is equivalent to having sex for them then you go to the theater of vampires in paris and they are putting on a performance of that in in live time in real time where they're killing someone for humans gullible ass audience members oh my god that's that's such a terrifying scene take me monsieur okay (laughs) very sad it's very sad when that you know because you can calm down karen you can feel the fear 
Um, and that's another theme I wanted to talk about was fear. Do you all, do you fear these vampires? Do, who, which were the scariest vampires in the book to you? So we had the remnants, we had like the theater of vampires where they've made it into a, a performance, a show. And then you have Lestat, who's just, you know, kind of a, a, a revenant, but with like a little bit of a higher. No, I would say someone like Lestat would be very scary. First of all, I'm a snack, right? Mm-hmm. And he's definitely picking me out from the crowd oh, Mark. and stalking me all over the oh, city. Boy, I <laughs> think so. But, huh? but Lestat's the worst kind because he does it as a game. Right. He likes the he likes, you know, the elaborate kill, the setup, you know, and uh, he's fine. Kill, you know, chomping on you for a while. You wake up screaming. He's like, OK, fine. Drags you off, snaps your neck or lets you just scream. And he finds it hilarious. Mm-hmm. So he's a torture guy. Louie, I feel like getting killed by Louie. He's just going to do it, you know, business like he's not going to draw it out. Now, he might start crying in the middle of the meal. <laughs> Which would be awkward. <laughs> like he's weeping tears of blood. And you're like, bro, it's okay. You can just kill me now. Just finish it off, man. <laughs> My God, please. <laughs> and then Claudia is just like getting killed by a chihuahua, right? I mean, it's just viciousness and tiny teeth. Claudia is the Samson of vampires. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a good comparison. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> With her one, two vampires. Now, Armand is not scary at all because he basically hypnotizes you before he eats you. Yeah. Right. He's got the the electric eye thing where zap and you're like, oh, and you faint. Revenants, I feel like I can maybe outsmart a revenant. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, it's a five fifty nine at six o'clock. You're bursting into flames. <laughs> so all I have to do is climb this tree and wait. But um, no, I would say Louis. I mean, not Louis. I would say Lestat is probably the scariest one because he's going to make it last and he doesn't care whether it hurts or anything like that. Yeah, he tortured that one girl and put her in the coffin and yeah, closed exactly. her in. And, and thought it was hilarious. And thought that was funny. Danced around with Claudia's dead mother. Well, that was pretty awful. <laughs> I would go with the revenants just for the obvious reason that at least with the more civilized vampires you're getting. Yes, you're getting toyed with, but they, they wine and dine you most of the time before they eat you. <laughs> oh, so you <laughs> like you. So you Versus want the revenants that just come in and get you. Yeah, you you expect a dinner before the the yeah, sex happens. Like you gotta earn it. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not um, cheap. Like, yeah, the revenants scared me, and the way that that was all set up scared me. These kind of ignorant people huddled around in a in an in a tavern, and yeah, and the the creepy things that the people did to the dead bodies, and just that whole vibe was was scary. Creepy, and yeah. anything that is so mindless, they can't really consider or can't really reason at all. Yeah. Uh, at least the other vampires could, but yeah, Lestat. Do you think you're bad. talking Lestat out of eating you though? Probably not, but at least with Lestat, you're like I said, you're getting seduced yeah, in a gonna, way. Yeah, you're gonna have a good time. Takes you on a date first, right? Until yeah, see, that's a, that's the thing. Um, and the other ones that that really disturbed me, I don't know if they were terrifying to me, but what disturbed me were the vampires at the theater. Yeah, because I they're just like so. Either. They're just so disaffected and bored. Like they didn't really have anything else interesting about them, you know, for talk about playing with your food, put up this whole show with their meal, you know, for everybody to watch. It was an entire spectacle, not just done in a private room or something where, you know, you or a back alley. They they put it all on display. Yeah. Um, Did you like the book? Yeah, it's a good book. And I read Dracula right after it. And clearly it's a more complex literary 
work than Dracula is, which was mostly just about how weak women are. <laughs> so it's a creative, well-constructed universe, right? Mm-hmm. That's why she could write 35 books in that universe. Mm-hmm. I like the book for sure. I saw the movie before I read the book. I didn't really find Anne Rice until after I saw Interview with the Vampire. You know, a lot of people read a, read the book and then they see the movie and they're like, oh, the book didn't do, the, the, the movie didn't do the book justice. I'm such a big Brad Pitt fan that, you know, I wanted I wanted the book to be more like the movie. I prefer the movie over the book. And also this time reading it, I struggled a bit more. I don't know if it was because I was, you know, I had to only had a certain amount of time to read it or what the case was. Normally I can, you know, plow through a book pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. But I definitely struggled with it this time where when I first read it, I couldn't get it, you know, couldn't get through it fast enough. I enjoyed it a lot. But overall, it was good. I read it of in the 80s when I was a teenager. It meant a lot more to me then than it did this time around. Right. I was much more in tune with Louise mm-hmm. existential angst. Yes. And you were embracing mm-hmm. your gothy cell. And I was. And through when I was reading it, I thought to myself, my goodness, the prose is very heavy. And I know it, it's that genre that it could have done with a little bit of editing. Sure. A little brevity. Yeah. Little <laughs> Just, you know, and so, and there were some, it wasn't terribly purple prose, but there, it verged on that. Yeah. And I thought, uh, you know, that kind of was jarring. But that's the literary tradition it's coming out of. Absolutely. Too, right? Absolutely. So I can't fault it for that, except for me, yeah, you know, yeah. as a, as a reader going, uh, okay, you know, you could have said that with about 10 less words right. and it would have been pithier. Like, like if Hemingway wrote a vampire novel. Oh God, no, not just that like, pithy. The light is bright. He bites. <laughs> yeah, he not, Story's over. Not <laughs> the end. Yeah. <laughs> not that. I saw myself dead by a vampire in the rain. No, yeah, know? yeah, exactly. No, and, and I was impotent. That's another well, one that, that's that, that hits all the, the uh, Hemingway points. But no, I am. Um, I did like it. I did. I really like the book. And Joanne, it's going to be interesting when we talk about the movie next week, because I, I like the book much better than I like the movie. So, I'm so much more excited to talk about the movie. Right, right. OK. Well, and that's just because Christina has a weird thing with Tom Cruise. <laughs> it's right. not just Tom Cruise. No, no, no. no. Yes, it's, it it's not. No, it's not. Um, OK, one last quick question. Who's your favorite vampire? Mm, Lestat. Lestat is definitely my favorite out of these three. Right. I like the show that Lestat puts on, you know. Like I said, the wine and dine and, and he toys with yeah. them and he's sadistic and I'm a little sadistic. So I see a little of <laughs> yeah. if I was going to be a vampire, I would be absolutely sadistic. Yeah, he, he's going to he's his meals are going to be events. Yeah, right? mm-hmm. I play with my food, too. Girl. Claudia. Claudia is your I like favorite. the mindless killer. No, <laughs> uh, I think Armand probably. Yeah. Right. Because that's how I generally see vampires is this kind of. Alpha dog, super smooth, super suave, mm-hmm. been alive for five million and a half years. Mm-hmm. So I think I like Armand best. I would say going forward in the Vampire Chronicles, obviously Lestat becomes the, the he's everything, right? Like because everything yeah. else kind of revolves around him. But I like, I, you know what? I, I, he's, I, he's a struggle, but I think I'm going to go with Louis. Louis. Just wow. Kind of a decent guy. He's just because he really grapples. He grapples in the same. I, I, I really I can really vibe with his grappling because I grapple. You're a grappler. You, you can really deal with that. The whiny and I don't oh want to marry have you, him. Have you ever heard oh, okay. of Christina? Right. Holy no, cow. I don't want to marry him, but I like I like 
to read his thoughts. I like to read how introspective he was. He gave me insight into what's going on in his head. Yeah. And I like that. And I don't think that the others really. Well, he was he was that. the most interesting character in the book. No doubt about it. Right? Well, he is the vampire, right? Well, he is. And but he's also the most complex, right? Because Lestat, at least in this book, is not is like one or two dimensional, right? Claudia is not that interesting. And Armand is the kind of a, a removed kind of uh, impersonal figure mm -hmm. for most of it. So, you know, he's definitely the most interesting character as, you know, I'm sure she intended. He's not the most pleasant or appealing character perhaps, yeah. but for, he was for you. He was for me. I, Just I, he's I like clinging him. to the shreds of humanity that he has left. So I read an interesting article where they said that interview with the vampire it means actually two two different things. So right. it means interview with the vampire, meaning Louis Louis telling his story. Yeah. But at the end, Daniel wants to become a vampire. Well, and so it's sort of like interview with the vampire, like interviewing. Right. Can, can I, I be yeah. a vampire? I'm I'm auditioning for the part. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I was a revenant uh, for five years. <laughs> Um, but the force my resume, down. my references. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I've bitten uh, and assisted in biting <laughs> I've been a and managed the biting of 111 uh, civilians. <laughs> so I really feel like I'm ready to take the next step. <laughs> but yeah, so so I thought that was kind of an interesting. Where do you see yourself in 500 years? Way to well, think about it. I'm still a vampire, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. So I, I just thought that that was an interesting way to think about it, because it really does bring back the instead of being terribly afraid of them, you kind of go, "Ooh, like I'm afraid of you, but I also admire you. Yeah. And I also I'm, want what I'm you curiously have. drawn to. I want to do what you do. Uh, so what well, we've learned this evening, we've learned some important things. Okay. Right. We talked about uh, some of the symbolism of uh, interview with the vampire as it related to uh, Anne Rice's life, mm -hmm. especially, you know, with her daughter's death. We talked about characterizing some of the vampires' uh, personalities mm -hmm. and their different approaches. We talked about how whiny Louie is. And overall, we came to the conclusion that it's a pretty good book. Not the greatest book of all time, but it's a, it does what it intended to do, which is to write an interesting gothic tale about vampires. So, you know, we're going to give her we're going to give her a decent grade for that. Yeah, do you think? I agree. I agree. All right. So, Joanne, do you want to do um, do do the outro for us? Thank you all so much for taking the time to listen to us today. If you want, you are welcome to follow us on Twitter. Our podcast Twitter is vampire underscore insider. And you can also follow our personal Twitter accounts. Christina is at Christina Gen X. That's Christina with a K. Mark is at Mark Eats Peach, Mark with a C. And I am at just block me underscore one. We hope you'll come back next time and listen to Christina and I continuously prove Mark wrong. And if you enjoy us, make sure you share us with your friends. Thank you guys. Okay, well, I'm going to just say goodbye. Peace out, Daywalkers. <laughs>